This is a Federal News Network podcast. At the Defense Department, artificial intelligence has been topic one lately. But unlike, say, China, the U.S. federal government, including DOD, has a policy of ethical and unbiased application of AI. Recently, the Defense Innovation Unit issued what it calls Responsible AI Guidelines. Here with what they're all about, the unit's technical director for artificial intelligence and machine learning, Jared Dunman. Dr. Dunman, good to have you on. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. And just review for us very briefly the way that DOD thinks or intends to use artificial intelligence. It's a pretty broad-based application set, isn't it? Yeah, it is. There's a lot of different applications within the DOD that one could think about using artificial intelligence for. And that ranges from making ourselves more efficient in how we analyze remote sensing data to respond to natural disasters. It involves making sure that we optimize business processes when we are doing things many times that require a lot of manual work within the DOD and in places like our financial systems or our business processes, making sure that we can run those uh, both more effectively and more efficiently. Also, you know, providing value to folks who spend a great deal of their time out in the field, analyzing data, trying to figure out, you know, what pieces of important information they can use to make better decisions in the context of their operational environment. And that spans the gamut of things from folks who are, again, you know, say looking at satellite imagery to folks who are, who are looking through open source information, all the way down to folks in the medical system who are trying to analyze medical information to make better decisions for veterans healthcare. So there's a huge gamut of potential applications for artificial intelligence within a venture that has, you know, kind of the, the, the both the breadth and, and depth of the DOD. So it's a, it's a unique context in which to be able to work on these things. And so what prompted the development of these guidelines then? So a couple of years ago, really February of 2020, DOD committed to five major AI ethical principles. And these were pretty well thought out and concisely stated, but there's a wide gap between stating those principles and translating them into concrete actions that could be taken on any given program. So because we work at DIU with a large number of companies, many of whom have put a good deal of thought into some of these same issues, we're able not only to prototype and rapidly iterate upon our approach to operationalizing those principles, but also integrate feedback from some of the best folks in the world on the commercial side. So in that context, let me give you a little bit on, on kind of what DIU does and how it works to, to contextualize kind of how I'm going to answer this question. You know, what we do is we're a DOD entity within the Office of the Secretary of Defense that focuses on deploying commercial technology in support of national security. We do that primarily by running commercial solutions openings programs in which we work with DOD partners to identify a DOD need we put out a brief solicitation describing that need. We receive bids from a large number of both traditional and non-traditional companies. And then we run a down select to get these folks on contract within a matter of months, help to manage a one to two year period of performance. And then ultimately, if the company is able to meet the DOD partner success criteria, leverage an OTA-based contract structure that we work with to scale those solutions broadly within DOD. So because we're executing programs, we've been really focused on making sure that when vendors came to us and said, okay, uh, you have these ethical principles at DOD. What does that mean we need to do on, on these programs? It's really important for us to be able to say, it's not as DOD policy, but as you know, guidelines that are based on our experience working with private companies and informed by best practices from academia, from industry, from folks in government. How can we you know, give at least some guidance to say, when we say traceable, equitable, governable, et cetera, in our AI ethical principles, how does that translate into the concrete process of developing and deploying an AI capability? And that's what those guidelines are really intended to inform. 
We're speaking with Jared Dunman. He is technical director for artificial intelligence and machine learning at the Defense Innovation Unit. So these guidelines then are aimed at industry that would hope to do business with DIU, or do you also kind of hope they get throughout DOD itself and, and read there also? So they're certainly aimed at DIU specifically in the sense that we are laser focused on executing these programs. That being said, of course, the hope is that if folks, you know, we, we've gone through the effort of writing up the supporting materials for these things that, that really they involve, you know, kind of three sets of processes, three flow charts, almost, if you will, you know, one for the planning phase, one for the development phase, one for the deployment phase. And, you know, we have worksheets describing kind of how we think about each of those phases and the things that we need to work through and the questions we need to ask. So things like, you know, have you, have you thought about where your data is coming from? Do you know what its provenance is? How have you convinced yourself it's relevant? What is your task? What is your input? What is your output? And what is the benchmark by which you're measuring performance? Have you done a concentrated effort to identify your stakeholders and end users? And have you thought about harms modeling? Have you done a targeted harms modeling process? So all of these, the, the worksheets that we've got to, to kind of guide that process for ourselves, really, we've gone to the effort of making so that we can put it in a public form. It's up on our website, along with a white paper that actually describes kind of some of our learnings from applying this to our programs over the last year or so. And so, yes, the short answer is that we certainly aim to do it for ourselves to hold to, to both make our lives easier and to hold ourselves accountable for how we're running these programs. But at the same time, we certainly hope that it'll provide value, not only for folks in, in DOD, but also for folks who are even in the private sector, because there are aspects of this where when you're working on a DOD application, there are questions that you have to ask where you have to you know, really you know, ask hard questions sometimes. You know, there are occasionally times where your folks are developing applications in the private sector where, you know, it's not always obvious what the best process is. And so our hope is that by documenting some of these things that we've had to wrestle with, we can both A, provide value more broadly, but also give folks from, again, academia, industry, the partners that we work with, the chance to, uh, you know, throw tomatoes at us and say, hey, you should do this better. Here's a way you can do this better, et cetera. So it's transparent in that way. And the implication here, and tell me if I'm correct about this, is that when deploying an algorithm to do something, to direct some sort of a system or outcome, the algorithm is not as crucial to the ethical deployment of it as the data used to train it? Or is that going too far? It's all related. You can certainly have data that makes sense and would align with the ethical principles that you have. And you could certainly find a way to train an algorithm that would not reflect kind of those ethical principles. So it's the entire process. So that's why it's not only a matter of have you gotten the right data and have you trained an algorithm that seems like it would make sense. There's also a big part of this, which is in that deployment phase I mentioned, which is what do you do? You know, it's not building AI systems is not just a matter of training a model and saying, yes, I have it. It is a continuous process of maintenance and inquiry and monitoring and making sure that you're thinking post-deployment, am I continuing to do that harms modeling? Am I continuing to monitor what about this model is going right? What about this model is going wrong? Has my environment changed such that the assumptions that I built this model under are no longer correct? And that's causing me to have suboptimal outcomes. So the short answer is it's all of the above. And the important thing to realize is it's not just a matter of, okay, I counted for those things, so I'm good. It's a, I have to continue to do that every single day. And by the way, that can also mean that if you look at that, the costs of doing that, like there's a cost associated with that, right? So there are some algorithms where if you tell a human, hey, human, go and read these 1 billion documents, you say, look, there's no way. It'd be very helpful for, for machine learning to help me out doing that and identifying important pieces of information. So maybe maybe the cost of maintaining that model there is worth it. But there are other contexts where people have looked at the process that we go through and kind of gotten a sense of, well, this is actually what it takes to maintain an AI system. 
And their response was, I'm not sure it's worth it. And then our response being, yeah, that may be the right answer. In the DOD context, there's probably, or the federal context, it's not simply a matter of doing those constant accountability checks that you mentioned, but also documenting them and being able to show that you've done them, which itself is a big effort and an expensive one. Yeah. And that's why, again, that's why we went to the effort of creating kind of those worksheets again for ourselves to kind of guide and make that process efficient, both for ourselves and for our partners and to make sure that we're all on the same page. Because you can also say, here's what I want. And the folks you're working with take that in a slightly different way. And then you end up talking past each other. So yeah, it is work, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done. Right. And so I guess the response to be clear, yeah, the response is yes, it is work, but you know, really doing anything worthwhile requires work. And so the question becomes, is that work worth it to accomplish the outcome that one wants to achieve with an AI system? And that's why it's so critically important to be clear about from the start, what the first questions we ask, what is the task you're doing? How are you measuring performance? And what is the benchmark? What is the current way you're doing that? Because if you can't answer those questions crisply and concisely, you will not be able to measure value and you can't actually make that value judgment about whether it's worth doing the entire rest of this because you won't be clear about how the system is going to provide you value. And it sounds like then that these guidelines are useful to anybody, any agency deploying AI or contemplating it, not just Defense Department. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've certainly talked with a number of folks outside the DOD and kind of both gotten their input from kind of their own experience and certainly tried to make these things accessible. So uh, I won't go and <laughs> I won't go and go and speak for for the other folks that have to, uh, you know, read things that we wrote. But at the same time, certainly our hope is that there's at least some value provided to those folks. Jared Dunman is Technical Director for Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning at the Defense Innovation Unit. Thanks so much for joining me. Of course. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to those guidelines at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. 
Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I, I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, 
from C to C-suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Celebrate this holiday season by sending money to your loved ones with Western Union. As a new customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee when you send money online. For fast and reliable money transfers, use Western Union. Visit westernunion.com or download our app today to get started and your first transfer fee is on us. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 906983 or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 906985. FX Gain Supply.